Our passage this morning comes from the book of Job, chapter 10. Uh, Before I read the passage, before we pray that his blessing upon it, just remind you that uh, chapter 9 and 10 are Job's answer to Bildad. Uh, Well, his response first to Bildad, chapter 9, and then chapter 10, he addresses himself unto the Lord God. Uh, In his response to Bildad, he had made the point that is common, well, it's, It's made in Scripture that judging by providential events alone, one cannot tell the favor or the disfavor of God. It is not true that the wicked always fail and and get their comeuppance in the world. And it's not always true that the faithful and true and the righteous prosper. Uh, That there is more to it than that. And we will see, and one of the things that we'll see this morning is that this truth, while helps us to deal with injustice in the world, also helps us to persevere in prayer. Uh, Before I read our passage, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ, and we thank you that you have uh, revealed yourself to us in many ways, and uh, and especially in giving us your Son, who is both the Son of Man and the Son of God. We thank you that in him we can come to a full understanding of your justice and your mercy, of your goodness and your graciousness and your truth. And we thank you, dear Lord, that you have not hid this even in old times from your saints and from your people, but have given us a a revelation of their trials, Uh, that we might see reflected in them our trials, and that we might find, as we find in them, your grace. Uh, We ask, dear Lord, that you would accompany the reading of this infallible word by the same Spirit that gave it, that your Holy Spirit might dwell within our hearts and prepare us to receive your word with understanding, with love, uh, with commitment that it might bear fruit in our lives, that it might cause us to repent of sin, that it might cause us to to trust and have faith in the word of our Savior all the more, that we would be obedient unto him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word in the book of Job, chapter 10. My soul is weary of my life. I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will not speak in the bitterness of my I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say unto God, Do not condemn me. Show me wherefore thou contendest with me. Is it good unto thee that thou shouldst oppress, that thou shouldst despise the work of thy hands, and shine upon the counsel of the wicked? Hast thou eyes of flesh, or seest thou as man seest? Are thy days as the days of men? Are thy years as man's days that thou inquirest after my iniquity and searcheth after my sin? Thou knowest that I am not wicked, and there is none that can deliver out of thy hand. Thy hands have made me and fashioned me together round about, yet thou dost destroy me. Remember, I beseech thee that thou hast made me as the clay And wilt thou bring me into the dust again? Hast thou not poured me out as milk and curdled me like cheese? Thou hast clothed me with skin and flesh and hast fenced me with bones and sinews. 
Thou hast granted me life and favor, and thy visitation hath preserved my spirit, and these things hast thou hid in thy heart. I know that this is with thee. If I sin, then thou mockest me, and thou wilt not acquit me for my iniquity. If I be wicked, woe unto me, and if I be righteous, yet will I not lift up my head. I am full of confusion, therefore see thou my affliction, for it increaseth. Thou huntest me as a fierce lion, and again thou showest thyself marvelous upon me. Thou renewest thy witnesses against me, and increaseth thy indignation upon me. Changes and war are against me. Wherefore then hast thou brought me forth out of the womb? Oh, that I had given up the ghost, and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been. I should have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Cease then, and let me alone, that I may take comfort a little, before I go whence I shall not return, even to the land of darkness and the shadow of death, a land of darkness as darkness itself, and of the shadow of death without any order, and where the light is as darkness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. Job is still in great distress, and this distress is made evident, quite evident, in this prayer. But this is, nevertheless, a strengthening of Job's faith. We, as you look at his uh, uh, speeches, beginning in chapter 3, and then in his answer to Eliphaz in chapter 6 and 7, and then in his answer to Bildad, and and then his turning unto God, uh, just as he did with Eliphaz, in chapters 9 and 10, we find what is part of patient, perfect work. We find part of trials and tribulations, perfect work. That what starts off in chapter 3 is under great anguish and great distress and tribulations, doubts and confusions, there has been a refining and a polishing and a perfecting of Job's words as he addresses his Lord and as he, as he tries to wrestle with the uh, well-meaning perhaps but not very helpful counsel of his friends. And we see this here. Uh, we see in Job's prayer uh, a, a strengthening of his faith. Now, he's still desiring death. He still sees nothing ahead of him Uh, that can improve except going into the grave. And he still longs for just a little piece of God's acknowledged goodness and comfort in his life. We see this in verse 20 particularly. Before he goes into that which he will not return. Before he leaves this present world. Because once he leaves this present world and he has no token of God's favor as we We saw with Bildad, we know that they would not hold him innocent. We know that they would have accused him as a hypocrite. They would have congratulated themselves that this was a man that was found out even though his faults were secret. Nevertheless, his end was so terrible and disastrous that this must be a wicked man going to his grave. And instead of Job being a byword for patience and holiness and and righteousness, Job would have become a byword of hypocrisy, iniquity, and the judgment of God. This was still a very real danger before him and before his eyes. Uh, But we see 
here Job nevertheless persevering in prayer. That means he's persevering not in his own hope and in his own trust, even though he still maintains and recognizes that his conscience does not condemn him. And therefore, and therefore he has hope with the Lord God, though every sense, every his body being uh, eaten by worms and, and, and sores and crusts, though his children are gone and they're not coming back, though his wealth has been uh, stolen, though he's been reduced to nothing, yet nevertheless... Uh, he knows that even with his friends condemning him without any direct and specific calls, that he still hangs with the Lord, that he is still wrestling with him, that the Lord still is giving him uh, an ear. And this is one of the lessons we will be drawing, this, the great lesson we will be drawing from this is looking at this as an example of how you and I should be praying in affliction. How you and I should be praying when it doesn't seem like God is hearing us. How you and I ought to understand that parable in the Gospels, Luke chapter 18, when he talks about the unjust judge and the widow woman seeking justice at his hand who feared not God nor man, nevertheless wore him down as a squeaky wheel and got the oil and got what she desired. And the Lord Jesus says, how much more should you pray because your father is not an unjust judge? Well, what does that mean to persevere in prayer? Well, Job is the great object lesson of that. He's known for that. In fact, that's how James brings him before us, the patience of Job, the one who persevered. Not that he persevered without some faults. Not that he persevered perfectly. Not that he didn't say things that were extreme. But that nevertheless, he persevered with his God. And that is how you and I are expected to pray as well. And, and so it behooves us to look at, at, at the way he prayed, the method of his prayer. And, and there's four different things. I mean, first thing, and most essentially, he was honest in his contention with the Lord. He didn't hold back because he thought speaking with God required a certain sense of propriety. And certain things were not to be brought up. No, he is open before him. He recognizes that the Lord knows his heart. And there's no reason to pretend like he is any less grieved than he is. That he's less confused than he is. That he's less troubled than he is. My soul is weary of my life. I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. And I will say unto God, do not condemn me. Show me wherefore thou contendest with me. He wants to know if he is indeed being condemned, why is it? If he is to suffer at God's hand, why is it? He knows it's not arbitrary. He knows God is not arbitrary and cruel. So there must be a reason. And he knows his own heart that it's innocent before the Lord. Not that it's sinless, but that he is faithful and seeks the Lord. His very persevering in this trial and not... Just giving everything up proves this as he proved to Bildad in the latter part of chapter 9. Uh, he says, if I be wicked, in verse 29, why then do I labor in vain? If I was a hypocrite, I would take my wife's advice and I would curse God and die. But I know that isn't it. 
And I know that the Lord doesn't do anything without a reason. And I am going to be honest and I am going to seek understanding. And he does so in several arguments. The first one uh, is from God's justice and glory. The second one is from his mercies uh, that we'll see in verses 8 through 13. The third one uh, is his, uh, his own, in a, the third and fourth are from his own weaknesses. The first one is from his own ability to, uh, to stand up under this all-seeing scrutiny of the Lord. And therefore, he cannot be exposed to the Lord without the Lord also being merciful. And the last, just a plea for some little bit of comfort. This just have pity. He argues from God's pity uh, for him. Well, let's look first then at the argument from God's justice and, and his glory in verses 3 through 7. Is it good unto thee that thou shouldst oppress, and that thou shouldst despise the work of thy hands and shine upon the counsel of the wicked? These are rhetorical questions. Job is not accusing God of this injustice. But he was recognizing that, no, the answer is true. It is not to God's glory to oppress. It is not to God's glory to uh, magnify the righteous. So what are you doing in these things, O Lord? And then he goes through verses 4 through 6. Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a man sees? Are thy days as the days of man, and are thy years as man's days, that thou inquirest after my iniquity and searcheth after my sin? The picture is, is that the reason why he's suffering so long, uh, it could be like his friends are accusing him of, has a secret sin. And it's taking God a long time to find it because, because he is as a man. And, and sometimes it's really hard to get to a bottom of somebody's guilt. And so, like an investigator or a, a, a prosecutor, he has to make his case, and it takes him a while to build up a case. Well, God isn't like that. God doesn't need that kind of time. Why, if he is guilty, God would treat him as, as if he needed that great deal of time to build up a case against himself? Obviously, this is not what you're doing. And if you did... You know, you know my heart, verse 7, you know that I am not wicked, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. That's a confession. You know I am innocent before you, and you also know that I am not running to another to justify myself. You know that I am treating you as you are my last hope, my only hope. You're the one I'm contending with because there is nobody to stand between me and you, but you yourself. He's no hypocrite, and he's not going anywhere else. This is exactly Jacob's response unto the Lord when he's returning from the land of his, uh, of his uncle, his, what would become his father-in-law, and he's coming back to meet his brother Esau, and before he crosses the river, he meets the angel of the Lord, and they wrestle in the night in that great mysterious wrestling, and Jacob refuses to let go, even though the angel of the Lord has said, the dawn is coming and I must go. And he says, Lord, I will not let you go until you bless me. And Jacob receives at that time the name that is the name of his church, Israel. The one that wrestles with God. The one that, that recognizes though the blessing come through trial and much uncertainty and much confusion. It's nevertheless worth having. It's better than all the easy gifts of the world. It's better than all the, the sweets that have no consequences in the world. This is where the, the action is. 
It is with the Lord. And just as Jacob, so Job wrestles with the Lord and will not let him go until he gets some answer, some relief, some comfort, or some pity. And we need to understand that this is why Jesus himself commends this type of prayer, because it recognizes that there is faith. If you didn't trust that the Lord will bless you, you're not going to stick with it. You would be as, as perhaps the, the hypocrite or the, 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 the good time Christian that prays into the Lord and, well, that didn't work, so I guess I'm going to have to do something else and get it myself. Instead of recognizing that though you might ha- the Lord might have something for you to do to, to give you that blessing and answer, it nevertheless ultimately comes from Him. And while you're doing it, you need to be in prayer and recognize that it's because you asked for it that you got it. God helps those who help themselves is not in the Bible. It actually comes from Matthew Henry's commentary on Scripture. Uh, and it recognizes that faith, that trusts God to do something, will nevertheless be working towards that, that, that goal. That if it is of the Lord, He will then bless it. But there has to be a contention with God. There has to be a wrestling with Him. And this... This Job does. And this is an honoring prayer. Now, superficially, it doesn't seem that way to his friends. And sometimes it wouldn't seem that way to us. Is it right to to challenge God's righteousness to him? Well, the Bible says yes. That one of the ways that we pray unto God is to say, as David says in the Psalms, if I go, if you allow the oppressors to be victorious over me, will there be anybody to praise your name? David's not holding anything over the bar with God, but he is wrestling with the Lord. But reminding the Lord that that you yourself seek that glory of God. And it's an argument to fortify your prayers. Uh, That you only would not cease from arguing with God if you didn't believe that arguments mattered. If you didn't believe that God himself didn't care. If you believe that God hears and cares, then you will use arguments with God. You do it out of humility. Remember, Job begins this, I will leave my complaint upon myself. There is a great deal of humility in Job's honesty, but it is nevertheless quite bold because it's a boldness that recognizes God if he doesn't articulate it this way, but it is nevertheless that same confidence that we have when we recognize that God is our Father and that God is for us in Jesus Christ. So he argues from his justice and his holy, holiness and his glory. This, by the way, is the same way that Jeremiah does uh, with the Lord and, and in his contentions in Jeremiah chapter 14, verse uh, 19 and following. He says, Hast thou utterly rejected Judah? And remember, Judah is a wicked, wicked nation at this point. Hast thy soul loathed Zion? Why hast thou smitten us and there is no healing for us? We look for peace and there is no good. For the time of healing and behold trouble. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against thee. And then 21, do not abhor us for thy name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of thy glory. Remember, break not thy covenant with us. You have made an agreement with us. And while we're unworthy of it, certainly you're worthy of your word 
Are there any among the vanities of the Gentiles that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Art not thou he, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait upon thee, for thou hast made all these things. We have no other place to go. And though we deserve your iniquity, we know uh, deserve your condemnation, we know that there is no peace except it come from you. So the only thing we can bring before you is a confession of our iniquity. Show us your peace. That's what, that's what Israel does. That's what the, the one that goes away justified from the Lord does. Jesus in the parable also, Luke 18, the Pharisee and the publican come before the Lord. The Pharisee, I thank you that you have made me not like that guy over there, a sinner. But the publican, having nothing to commend himself to God, commends himself to the mercy of God. He beats his chest and says, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. And Jesus says that it is he that went away righteous and not the Pharisee. This is, this is how we argue from God's justice and his good, uh, glory in our own prayers. That we don't stand upon ourselves. We actually argue God to God. And that is proper and good and it shows faith. The second thing that Job does, and this lifts up his spirits a little bit, he remembers his mercies that he's already received. In verses 8 through uh, 13, verses 8 and 9, first, You have made me and fashioned me together round about, yet thou dost destroy me. You made me, but now everything you've put together is falling apart. Remember, I beseech thee, that thou hast made me as the clay, and wilt thou bring me into dust again? Now, it's certainly true that he who made the, the clay jars is perfectly within his right and sovereign majesty to do with what he wants to with those jars and break them and tear them apart or give them great honor. This is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 9 that he draws out of Isaiah as well, that the potter is lord of the clay. And yet... There is also in that analogy a certain bit of hope as well. If the Lord will, will take his time to shape that clay into a vessel of mercy and a vessel of honor. Is it really expected that he will then just discard it? Job says you have taken such pains with me to be such a, a, a mercy to me. And, I am arguing for my past mercies, not that I think that I've used them all up, but remembering, or not remembering, but tapping into the same instinct that Jesus reveals as a good one, to those who have, more shall be given. That when God is merciful to his people, it's not an argument that they've had enough, it's rather an argument that he will still be merciful unto them. And so he recounts his birth, his conception, and his life before him. This is the imagery, by the way, uh, it's not biologically and scientific, but this was the poetical way that Job puts it. Hast thou not poured me as milk and curdled me like cheese? Thou clothed me with skin and flesh and hast fenced me in with bones and sinews. Thou granted me life and favor and thy visitation hath preserved my spirit. It's a very poetic way of, of the conception to birth and then his providential goodness uh, the, the little, he's, he's a blob of, of liquid milk that he's slowly having the skin and the, the frame being put together. That God takes his time. Uh, God takes his time in his mercies. God created the world not instantaneously, but in six days. 
God creates human beings, not instantaneously, but in a nine-month sort of incubation process that then uh, flourishes out into the world and is even further in 20 years or so until they reach their maturity. That God delights in the process and the labor and the work and the temporal nature of that sort of thing. And Job recounts this not just as all the ups and downs that were surely there, but as all tokens of his constant mercy to him. And uh, that his life was filled with uh, that preservation prosperity, verse 12. And he remembers that this is in the mind of the Lord. These things hast thou hid in thy heart. You haven't forgotten these things. I know that this is with thee. I know that these mercies were real and genuine. This uh, Psalm 139 repeats the same. I know that I am fearfully and preciously made. That, that from my birth and to life, those are arguments for your goodness to me, and therefore arguments for your continued goodness to me, and therefore arguments that I can use to ask for continued mercies. So again, he's arguing God with God. His trust and faith is such that he goes nowhere except to God for his arguments and prayer to God. Because he is God. And, and this verse 13, by the way, is the counterpart to verse uh, 22 in chapter 9. These things hast thou hid in thy heart. I know that it's with thee, even though my life is miserable, even though, verse 8, you seem to destroy me now. I know that you created me. I know that the present miseries do not erase the love that you have for me, even though I cannot see them. Which is very much like 22. This is one thing, therefore, I say that he destroys the perfect and the wicked. You can't tell that God loves the, or that one is right with God or wrong with God by their prosperity in the world. That good things happen to the wicked, bad things happen to the good. Therefore, you look somewhere else. And that's also true when we're considering our own selves. It cautions us against judging others by the, the events that happens to them. But it also cautions us to remember God's promises even when it appears like He's against us. And that's how it's functioning here in this prayer of Job. And that's his argument and that's, that's the great... Uh, there, sometimes when we, we look at the vanity of things, we only see the negative we forget that even with Solomon, the vanity of vanity, all is vanity, is not a bad thing. Because just as good things are passing away, so are also passing away bad things. And just as we can't determine that God hates somebody by the trials that they uh, endure, or that God approves of somebody because of the blessings that they have, it also means that we, uh, in our troubles, are not necessarily forsaken by the Lord. That we look deeper, we look to His promises. And so, to do that, he ends up by pleading his own weaknesses and his misery. Uh, verses 14 through 17, uh, the anger of the Lord, he says, is too much for him if he has no token of his favor. If I sin, then thou markest me, and thou wilt not acquit me for my iniquity. If I be wicked, woe unto me. And if I be righteous, yet will I not lift up my head, I am full of confusion. Therefore, see thou my affliction. This is uh, like uh, Jesus' words in uh, the book of Luke, uh, where he tells them, 
that they ought always to, to remember that they are unprofitable servants, uh, that they are weak before the Lord. When you have done everything uh, that you have been commanded to do, say, Lord, we are unprofitable servants. I didn't earn your favor. I just did what was my duty. Uh, in, in Luke, I think, 17, verse 10, uh, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Even if he's righteous, he knows that he has nothing to commend himself before the Lord because that's what he was supposed to be in the first place. He's not going to look to himself. He can't look to himself. Thou huntest uh, my foes, uh, my afflictions increase. You hunt me as a fierce lion. And again, thou showest thyself marvelous upon me. Thou renewest thy witnesses against me. Those plagues that are upon me increase my indignations upon me. Changes in a war are against me. Everything seems to be a, a multitude and, and a, 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 a troop of, of despair and uncertainty. And without it, and, and without your mercy, I cannot stand. And so he pleads for just a little comfort. He reissues his desire for dying because that's the good that he sees before himself. That's the only good he sees possible left to him. He begs in verse 20 that he might take some little comfort before he die. Just that, and it will be enough. And he closes his prayer. Or rather, Zophar interrupts his prayer. I don't know, but let's assume that he closes his prayer there. And so having looked at the form and the structure of the prayer, seen the arguments that he does, let's look at the resources that are there for your patience in prayer, my patience in prayer. Uh, for a general direction, uh, in, especially in time of affliction, uh, we, we see here the clear principle that the Lord is your only treasure and your only comfort. Verse 7, Thou knowest that I am not wicked, and there is none to deliver out of my hand. That is given there to, to remind him that he's going to nowhere else. Either there would be no place to go. Uh, when in John 6, uh, many of his disciples are offended at what Jesus says and depart, and Jesus turns to those that would be his apostles and says, Do you depart too? And Peter says... Where would we go apart from you? Where would we go? If our hope is not in you, if we are offended by you, that may be it, but there is no other solution than you. So with Israel, we will not let you go until you bless us. In John chapter 5, as we read this morning, He that hath a son hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. And therefore, it is only on Him that we depend. And He needs to be the substance, the hope, and the purpose of our prayers, the goal of our prayers. And in so doing, we remember that God is well pleased with an open, sincere, and honestness about our, uh, our situation, our problems, our, our trials, but also as with, with Job, our unworthiness for them. Even if I were righteous, yet will I not lift up my head? Even though I have done all that you commanded me, I recognize I am an unprofitable servant, for I have only done my duty. I have only done that bare minimum that was required of me. 
There is no works of supererogation. There is no works over and beyond what the Lord requires of us because He requires of us to love Him with all of our heart, mind, body, and soul and to love one another as we love ourselves. And there is no 110% that we can give apart from His grace and mercy. So we cling to His sure word of mercy. We cling to Him. Uh, He is our chief treasure and therefore even when we cannot see the, the good that He would do for us, even when we cannot see what Paul says, all things work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, even when we cannot see that God is for us and it doesn't matter who's against us, we nevertheless remind ourselves with faith, with trust, not in our senses, but in God's promises, and we say, these things thou hast hid in thy heart and have not revealed them unto me, but I know that it's with you. I know your love and faithfulness, your mercy is with you. I want it. I want to see it. I want to see it now. But even if I don't, I know it's with you. And that's how we strengthen our prayers. And if you are distressed and despairing, if you are under affliction, if you are greatly anxious about the times that we live in or your situation right now, either financially or with your family or just existentially in the world, Job is here for a pattern. Job is here for a pattern in the way we pray, but also in the fact that he kept at it. And remember that this is also Jesus' words about the ones that he delights to hear, those that keep at it, like the woman seeking justice from an unjust judge. And remember also that the Lord indeed did hear. It didn't appear to Job that he heard, not there. It felt to Job like he did not hear. And Job wrestled with his friends and will continue to wrestle with his friends that Job is not a short book by any stretch of the imagination. It tells us in in a very visceral way that sometimes this patience has to be patience. That persevering has to persevere. That endurance means something. You have to keep at it. Even when it doesn't seem to be fruitful. That's what using Job as, as a model means. But the Lord did hear. And the Lord did answer. The Lord vindicated Job. He didn't just give him a little comforting a pat on the back before he died. He, he vindicated him to his friends and made Job the mediator for his friends. On top of that, he took the friends' accusation and, and, and accusations of what God would do to a good man and what God would do to a wicked man and decided to bless Job with those blessings so that they would know right full well that Job was blessed. And therefore, his family flourishes again. And his wealth flourishes again. Probably not so much to Job's request, but, but to vindicate Job against his friends. And he will vindicate you. Uh, as we're studying in Sunday night, the martyrs under the altar pray for justice. And seals are broken and trumpets are blasted and bowls are poured out for the sake of those prayers. And Babylon is destroyed. And the bride of Christ is glorified. So he will hear you in your distress. 
But what about you who are not afflicted right now? Who are not under great tribulation or trial? Does this passage speak to us? And I would say yes, too. I mean, look at verse 7. Thou knowest that I am not wicked. Sincere faithfulness in good times becomes then your, your, your little uh, token of support, your life jacket in bad times. It is when you're not afflicted that you need to make sure that you have a sincere conscience before the Lord. Because that will fortify you under the duress. If Job had not a good conscience, then he would have to hear in a very different way the accusations of his friends against his hypocrisy. What gave him hope was that he was not conscious of turning against God. That is a precious, precious, uh, vital little crutch for our prayers. It's why that, that we're told that the prayers of the righteous by James avail much. Because they have what they need to persevere in hard times. It makes it easier for them. It is a bit of a comfort for them. And so cultivate that now. Use it just like you save up money for the bad times. You invest for the future. You put away for your retirement. You put away for that time when things would come lean. You take your garden, you can, and you put in the freezer your meat so that you will have it when you don't have it. So that you have it when you need it. Well, cultivate a pure conscience with the Lord. So that when it looks like God turns against you, you will have that crutch, those memories of the blessings to strengthen your perseverance in prayer. So remember that his favor is not always obvious, like in Job verse 13. And so you need to cherish now the sight of his goodness so that when troubles come, you can recount the Lord's blessings to you as Job did. You, you formed me together. You pieced me together. You brought me into the world and you preserved me. I know that you've been merciful to me, and so I can hope that you will continue to be so. But if you don't cultivate a habit of remembering his mercies, they won't be there for you to recount when you need to. And also, remember with Job, but with anybody, how much small comforts are worth when you don't have any comfort. But just a little bit of water is, is a lifeline when you're thirsty. A little bit of food, doesn't matter what kind of food, is wonderful to the taste when you're hungry. A little bit of comfort goes a long way when you're devoid of comforts. And so when you have a great many, first be, be grateful for it. Be grateful for them now. But also in remembering how much a small comfort is, to help us, and this we'll put ourselves in, in, in Job's friend's place, to show a little comfort to those that are distressed. How valuable would it have been if Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar had come to Job not with a preachy condemnation, but with a sympathetic and empathetic commiseration, a word of peace, 
to remind him without also reminding them that he was a sinner, that God is merciful. And to have been there for him and comforted him would have been a great relief. How powerful is just a little bit of love when, nobody, when somebody has none? And since you have a lot, how much wealth do you have to give in that department? It should remind us. And, should, and it should fortify us. And the, these are the ways and directions that we do in the world, and that redounds upon our prayer life. We'll be greater, more, more faithful people of prayer when we come to draw those things into our life, when we put ourselves in Job and recognize with Job that our only hope, the only good, the only, the only deliverer that we have is God himself. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. We do praise you for your mercy in him. We praise you that you have revealed yourself in him and that we know you in him. We ask your Lord that you would, by that same grace and mercy, persevere us, preserve us, cause us to persevere. We ask your Lord that you would uphold us in prayer, that we would delight to come before you. And Father, we ask that when we struggle to, to recognize that you hear us, that you would give us the grace nevertheless to continue to wrestle with you until we take hold of you in blessing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.